Specialty Story, session number 122. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. And welcome to Specialty Stories. Thank you for taking some time to listen to me today. This week, I have a great guest, someone actually very similar to a guest we had just a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, we had an REI specialist, but more from a program director standpoint. This week, we have an REI specialist talking about his career as an academic REI OBGYN. This week, we have Dr. Kenan Omortog talking about how he fell in love with REI and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this episode from Dr. Omortog. Don't forget to subscribe so that you get these episodes for free every week. And if you would, I would love for you to share these podcast episodes with your classmates. Let's go ahead and jump in and find out when Dr. Omortog first became interested in REI. I knew I wanted to go into OBGYN and then actually specifically REI at the same time. So I think I would, so I had the opportunity to go to Duke to that talent identification program, which is basically like a nerdy summer camp. <laughs> um, and I took a genetic, I took a genetics course. This is like 1997. Um, they had just cloned Dolly, the sheep, yeah. and they were talking about gene therapy. And I was like, oh man, it would be cool to talk, to be at the frontier of this science. So let me go do this genetics course. My mom was pushing it. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. We learned about IVF. We learned about kind of the future of reproduction, if you will. And I was really fascinated by it. And I was like, what is the medical, what, what's the medical path to this? Oh, I need to do OBGYN. And, um, some something something else. Okay, cool. Let's do that. So I kind of made that decision at an early age, which may be a little bit of an outlier, but to me it was easy. You get to talk about reproduction. You get to talk about sex all the time. It's never going to be a dull <laughs> moment. It's a fun job to talk about. It's going to be something that would be very satisfying um, to help people achieve uh, family. Yeah, uh, which sounds kind of canned, but it's the truth. And Did you have any experiences in your life that y you saw like family members struggling to get pregnant or anything, any personal experiences no. like that? No, I had, I had no personal experience to me. It was purely the science, the uh, fascinating conversations and the ethical dilemmas that I would be confronted with the desire to recognize that, you know, it's like the late nineties. Um, it, it was clear to me that, you know, there would be, third party reproduction, same sex couples would be needing options. And I felt like that was a space that I would do well in. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know, like just having these discussions because I was pretty liberal about reproduction and yeah. autonomy. Um, so I was like, this would be fun. Also, I felt like I had good skills in communicating with uh, people about these issues because we would have these discussions, interestingly, yeah, a lot growing up. How old were you when you went to this nerd summer camp? 15, 15, 15. So 15, the hormones are raging. You're like, I can talk about sex all the time. Sign yeah, me up. This is, <laughs> this is kind of fun. And it was also different. It was just kind of different, um, 
to me at the time, like it was, it was just more specific. Like I, I just remember like there was a bigger plan. The other piece of it was I was very interested in healthcare policy and I knew mm-hmm. that being a physician wasn't the only thing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I knew that there would be some career I would want to have afterwards. Yeah. And that would be in kind of management, leadership, policy. And I was like, women's health is a great space for that, especially um, fertility treatment, access, cost, coverage. Like to me in the late 90s, early 2000s, like fertility care was starting to grow rapidly. So to me, it made sense that that would also satisfy my thirst for um, that professional development. So that young... I'd assume Weird, right? I, I, I would make, well, I would make an assumption that one of your parents is in healthcare to have that. Well, it's a fair assumption to make. My dad is an engineer in academia. He was a chair yeah. um, at the time. My mom was an English teacher. Okay. Um, so the only experience I had was my, was my uncle who was an OBGYN who was kind of uh, grew up in OBGYN in the good old days in the eighties yeah. when they got paid well, drug companies treat, took them out to cruises <laughs> and stuff like that. And then tort reform and tort issues and suits became an issue later in his career. And that he became jaded and he was like, you don't, you don't, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so there was really, it was really an independent yeah. push quickly uh, f- as briefly as you can, I guess for, for a student who doesn't know what tort reform is that specifically hit OBs. What, what do you mean by that? So OBGYNs are at high risk for being sued um, because of some problem that happens during birth. So bad, bad outcome with a laboring uh, person will result in maybe a bad outcome for the baby. So as a result, um, it can be difficult for OBGYNs um, to get malpractice insurance because it's so expensive to cover their risk. Mm-hmm. And tort reform is a term used to talk about how policymakers can change state laws to um, reduce the cost of malpractice insurance, or if they don't enact laws that keep the malpractice insurance high, which can result in loss of workforce. Yeah. or, you know, fewer OBGYNs. Yeah. Okay. Now you mentioned something earlier and it's not something we really bring up on the podcast, but I think it is important specifically for REI. And, and as I'm recording this with you, I, I see a, a rainbow pride thing on the wall. You mentioned you're pretty liberal, but right. Statistics will show that 50% of the people listening to this are, are not liberal and are conservative for for REI, for someone who is conservative and maybe doesn't believe in same-sex marriage and, and doesn't want to have to interact with those types of patients, mm-hmm. is REI a good specialty for someone like that? That's a good question. Um, I would definitely not tell anybody that that alone is a reason not to do a specialty. If you truly have mm-hmm. a passion for the engagement, it is true that most of your patients um, will probably be um, you know, women who are have struggling with infertility and their partners. And most of them will be in partners that are, you know, there, there will be women who have, or are in relationships with men, mm-hmm. but you could be effectively reducing the amount of patients that you could actually help. Um, because there are a lot of people who, 
are in same-sex relationships that need access to these tools to help them build their family. So I think something eventually gives with individuals where they say, yeah, I'm cool. I can do it. And, you know, we just help people through it. Um, but I'm not out here advertising it or whatever it may be, or they just decide the space is not right for them. And, you know, that's fine. Um, and usually what ends up happening in those scenarios is those patients, um, just know to go elsewhere or the practice tells that those patients up front. Um, but largely most reproductive endocrine and infertility clinics these days are pretty, um, out about their support for their LGBTQ, uh, couples and individuals. Yeah. I mean, just, just from a business perspective, it makes sense, right? If you just want to look at it from a dollars and cents point of view. Yeah. If you look at it from a dollars and cents, it makes sense for some of these folks. Um, but I think also just genuinely, there are a lot of different ways to build a family. Mm. And I've always felt like it's important to help people give choice or understand what their choices are, because there are a lot of people that are ready to exploit one's vulnerability. Um, so I always think it's important to make sure people have the right choices that are available and the right information. And most importantly, they have access. Now, the data shows that only 25% of incoming medical students stick with the specialty that they came in with. What do you think it was for you during medical school that allowed you to stay with OBGYN? Or were there any other specialties that were like, oh, well, maybe this this thing is is what I should be doing? Well, I think part of it is I was so committed to OBGYN and REI from the get-go, which is kind of an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I did my introduction, so my when I did my introduction to women course as a second year medical student, I was kind of turned off because I was like, this kind of seems not for me, actually. So then I had a kind of moment where I was questioning my decision and wondering if maybe I should do uh, like, is there a path for medical endocrinology? And then I was like, nah, I need to do procedures. I can't be in like, that's not the right specialty for me. So then I did bounce back to ortho because of my sports interests and everything like that. And I was like, that would be fun. And then when I actually did the rotation, I was like, no, this is actually it for me. Yeah. So it made sense when I did the rotation. Okay. So as an REI doc, what types of patients are are coming to see you for treatment? So it's not just infertility. While the majority of patients we see are infertility patients, it's not just infertility patients. It's, so that's why it's more fertility. So it's mostly, um, you know, we see a lot of patients who are in the bulk of the practice is patients who have some type of infertility, whether it's a sperm factor, a tubal factor, an ovary factor, who are just trying to conceive and some of them might need, they just need assistance. We also see patients who are interested in freezing their eggs to prolong their reproductive lifespan. We'll also see patients who are getting ready to be confronted with chemotherapy and perhaps sterilizing treatments. So we'll talk to them about egg freezing, embryo banking, or even sperm freezing. Mm. Uh, We'll also see patients, uh, transgender patients, who are getting ready to start cross-hormone therapy and might have an interest in preserving their gametes, knowing that the cross-hormone therapy may disrupt their ability to make gametes in the future. Um, And we'll also see people who um, are struggling with endometriosis, who have pain issues. So we'll be the ones that will do a lot of complex medical management of endometriosis alongside our minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons. Yeah. 
as our understanding of genetics increases, how much pre-implantation genetic determination are you doing with patients? A lot. And that's another angle for fertility and not infertility. So we see a lot of patients who are interested in making sure their next child doesn't have a significant disease. They're both carriers of an autosomal recessive disease. They want to make sure their next child doesn't have yep. that disease. So we'll see patients for that indication. And then pre-implantation genetic testing in and of itself as a tool for embryo selection uh, is increasingly more common, however, very controversial. So we are seeing a lot of patients who are knowledgeable about pre-implantation genetic testing for bettering the embryo selection process. So our job is to educate them on the pros and cons of that tool and how it fits into their IVF plan. So is like we're seeing a lot of it. Is like 23 and me running screens on these embryos going, you should pick this one. Right. So there's a there are some people who think that that will be the future where you so it's the future of sex, right? Like yeah. so in in order to reproduce, some people have touted this idea that you will go to a fertility clinic, you will do this complex genetic panel that will pan screen you not just for genetic diseases but for all of these different um traits and then you will select an embryo that will have varying um percentage like varying likelihoods of having your child will have these certain traits that is probably coming. Yeah. Um, how close we are to it is some would say 10 years. We can, the technology is there. It's just a matter of, um, cons, you know, someone just stepping up and selling it. Yeah. Uh, there are obviously pros and cons to doing that. Yeah. Uh, lots of ethical and moral discussions around that. Yeah. But the genetic testing is common. Mm. Um, and you could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah. What does a typical week look like for you? So a typical week for me, I'm what some, so I am what's called a clinical educator. So when you're in these academic positions, you know, uh, are you just doing research all the time? Are you seeing patients? How are you generating money? So are you, do you have a grant that pays for your existence or are you seeing patients to, uh, subsidize your existence? So I am what's called a clinical educator. So I basically see patients and then I have some protected time to, that the medical student or the medical school pays uh, so that I can help with uh, medical student education. So my typical week is patients all day, Monday, Tuesday morning, uh, Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, and I'm in the OR on Fridays. And what does the OR look like for you? What are you doing? So, in, so for a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, the operating room is generally filled with minimally invasive gynecology procedures. So a lot of operative hysteroscopy, uh, cutting uterine septa, uh, removing fibroids from the uterus uh, without any incisions, or doing uh, removing fibroids from the uterus from above with either laparoscopy or abdominally. And then, um, doing some laparoscopy to remove tubes that are diseased or uh, dealing with endometriomas or cysts, complex cysts of the ovary. Interesting. So it's mostly laparoscopy, hysteroscopy. Yeah. So even as an REI doc, because you have that OBGYN training, you're still doing a lot of OB-GYN procedures. Right. But you are. Yeah. But in general, the um, surgical skill set of the... So like 30 years ago, the, the reproductive endocrinologist was the consummate laparoscopic gynecologic surgeon. Mm. But as IVF has gotten better, 
the surgical skills of the reproductive endocrinologists have um, reduced and you've seen a rise in minimally invasive gynecology training and more training after residency for minimally invasive gynecology. Um, so REIs are kind of doing lots of hysteroscopy mm -hmm. and some laparoscopy. Okay. And some of the more complex laparoscopy is going to minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons. There's yeah. a, very, a lot of variation in uh, geogra geographic variation and regions. So yeah. it's not a given. But it gives hope to a student who potentially may be interested in REI, but also doesn't, what they picture potentially is, is egg retrieval and implantation all day, every day. And so it gives them an idea that there is some more procedure stuff out there for them. There is more to it, but the practice setting will kind of dictate yeah. uh, what they're going to do. Okay. What are the biggest myths or misconceptions around REI that you see medical students and residents having? I think one of the biggest things has to do with the surgery um, I, and what ultimately REI is after training. Um, REI after training can be really whatever you want it to be, but you just have to find the right job opportunity to satisfy it. You know, if you want to be someone who just sees a lot of patients and does egg retrievals and embryo transfers all day and gets paid to just grind out, uh, and that's not a great word for it, but just to kind of just hustle and see as many patients as you can, there's a job for you. If you want a little more diversity in your, um, who you're going to see, like, I want to see some patients who have endometriosis. I want to see some menopausal patients and do some hormone therapy. I want to operate. Um, there is a job and I don't want to do as much. I, uh, reproductive endocrinology. There are jobs for you for that. If, but I think part of going through the OBGYN residency and ultimately trying to figure out what's best for you, um, is a function of where you are training. So when you're deciding to do an OBGYN residency, you really want to talk, you really want to kind of get a sense of, Hey, I'm really open to any subspecialty. So then you want to go to like a large academic program that provides, that has fellowships in all of the core subspecialties so that you can get exposure to all of those things. For example. Yeah. What should a student be doing to make him or herself competitive for a program that will have all of the, the subspecialties, which seem to be more competitive programs in general? I think step one is obvious. Um, you want to literally like not step one, but the test step one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, you're right. So like, obviously the objective stuff, you still want to be scoring well on those things. I, I don't know. I mean, I think today, you know, like some of these, I don't want to say a number, but I mean, you know, it's more competitive now than it was. Oh, the averages uh, are skyrocketing. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, I'm like, I don't know if I would have even gotten an interview, <laughs> um, at some of these places, yeah. but, um, I think that, you know, more to the extracurricular stuff, um, doing a project as a medical student in women's health w is a good idea. Cause it gives you some, um, opportunity doing what to, to have something to publish. It's not a requirement, but it definitely looks good. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in women's health. It could be any, just demonstrating the ability to start a project and finish it. Mm. That alone is a huge accomplishment. Yeah. So if you're, if you're able to show that, that's good. Um, and doing good on the OBGYN rotation, you know, helping, helping out, um, you know, being engaged, the usual things. 
Yeah. Um, the, I don't know if I have anything really special, like some special trick. It's usually the, it's the basic stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's there. where a lot of students struggle too. So it, being in an academic institution, what does a medical student email to a, a, a staff or faculty, uh, OBGYN faculty, or REI, if they're interested in that, what are they emailing to you saying like, Hey, I will, I'm interested in REI. Like, can I hang out? Do you have anything for me to yes. do? What are they, what are they saying? Yeah. So I have some, so a couple things I'll have, like I had a first year medical student come up to me and was like, Hey, I want to shadow you. Can I do that? Cool. Come on. Watch us do some procedures. It's outside of uh, the, you know, their rotation, but doesn't matter. I'll let, <laughs> we'll let them come in. Um, I have second or third years who are rotating, who are interested in projects. They'll ask, Hey, is there a project I can get involved in? And we'll say, yep, here you go. Let's do this. Um, so those are the, those are the typical, those are kind of the two best examples of the common emails I get. Okay. For the future primary care docs listening to this, what do you wish they knew about REI? I think the most important thing is if you, if you have a reproductive age female that you are seeing that is doing a well woman exam, ask them about if they're trying to get pregnant. And if they answer yes, and they've been trying to get pregnant for more than a year, refer them to a reproductive endocrinologist because a lot of folks may not be in, in spaces where they're getting their adult health maintenance from an OBGYN. They're getting it from their primary care. So the primary care, the only thing I would say is ask your patients about, are they trying to get pregnant? And if they are, you know, direct them to reproductive endocrine and infertility specialists. And if there's not one available, you know, definitely send them to the OBGYN. Um, and if the, you know, the, and the OBGYN should be able to, you know, satisfy whatever the need is. Mm. And if there's obviously, if they can't, they will then direct them to a fertility specialist from there. Okay. But I would say no, know who I would say, find out who the nearest fertility specialist is in your area. Are there any, for again, for the future primary care doc, are there any REI emergencies that they would be like, hey, I need you to get my patient in today? Or is it pretty, pretty standard? Just go schedule an appointment. The only, it's usually pretty much schedule an appointment. Um, however, if that primary care is somehow tied to cancer care, um, or they made a diagnosis, of, they did a breast biopsy, or they did some biopsy that suggests cancer, then you know, the educational point here is say, Hey, that patient is about to get exposed to some chemotherapy that could be sterilizing, whether it's male or female, yeah. um, talk to them, or at least ask them to ask their oncologist about sperm or egg banking, because there is a tight window for that. Yeah. And the fertility special, they need to see the fertility specialist ASAP if they're at all interested. What's the, the time frame for women specifically for egg retrieval? If, if they get that cancer diagnosis, they need chemo. How long until you can ramp up the hormones and get eggs out? Two weeks. Oh, pretty quickly. Yeah. So it's pretty quick. We yeah. get them in, we see them within 24 hours of the phone call. We put them through the process and it, it doesn't matter where they are in their cycle. Um, we just start them immediately. Just hit them hard with hormones. Exactly. <laughs> it's really that it's yeah. crazy. We used to think they had to be at the beginning of their period yeah. and we would have to wait longer, but you don't have to. Good. That's awesome. And then the guys, it's easy. The guys, just give guys, a sample. guys are easy. Yeah. That's why I didn't ask yeah. about the guys. <laughs> uh, the guys is pretty straightforward. Yeah. For for a future REI doc, are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine? Like, is is industry pretty big for REI? What else is going on out there? Uh, it's huge. Um, 
you can't, I think TechCrunch Disrupt has like <laughs> the two companies that are being presented are egg freezing companies. Wow. Okay. So just to give you a window, there's a lot of, um, A, there's a lot of people who recognize that the fertility space is a, is a, there is opportunity there. Okay. Uh, for better or for worse. Um, we have a lot of, uh, like I work for a company as a consultant, uh, who sells a, I work for a company called Yo Sperm Test. They sell a, um, mobile device that, so they basically sell a home sperm kit that attaches to your, um, mobile phone, uses a camera on your mobile phone, and it gives you an FDA approved readout that is consistent with the semen analysis results you can get with an automated semen analyzer. That's awesome. And it gives you count motility and a video of your sample. So for a patient who lives far away or it's, it might be, um, obstructing their ability to get a semen analysis, that is one option. It doesn't replace a semen analysis, but, and I should say, you know, I obviously work for the company, so yeah. I have a financial conflict of interest, but Ultimately, um, there are lots of opportunities in the field. There are people who are branching out and, you know, they're saying, Hey, come to my website. I'll be your fertility friend and you'll pay some membership fee for some period of time. Um, there are people who there are physicians, REI physicians who have decided, um, you know what, I'm just going to work from home and I can send me your records and I'll charge you some X amount. And I'll give you a second opinion over the phone after reviewing everything. Wow. Um, there are companies that are trying to sell, you know, everyone's got an app for the menstrual cycle, which we've learned that those apps are not that perfect, but um, there's a lot of venture capitalists that are willing to spend a lot of money on companies that are developing them. Yep. So we're seeing a lot of physicians in REI joining these medical boards. The genetic testing companies are finding, uh, opportunities to sell products. Um, but there's a little, there's some, it's great because private equity and venture capital can do a lot for our field, but there's also some concern that it may not be entirely, um, helpful to the patients in the long run. Yeah. Very interesting. Which is, which is, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. Yeah. That's cool. (laughs) What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into REI? Um, what do I know now that I wish I knew? I don't know. There really isn't much other than I wish it's always, every time I do a job, like when I went into residency, I was like, man, I wish I would have known this, or I would, I wish I would have thought to ask about the difference between OB volume and GYN volume at a residency program. Hmm. When I did fellowship after I, Match. I was like, Hmm, I wish I would have known to ask about like, um, how the protocols are decided and, you know, who, why we do, or, you know, like how much genetic testing do we do here versus, uh, I mean, at the time it was just starting. So that was tricky. Now, um, I think I kind of knew what I was getting into. So I don't, there's nothing really that comes up. That's like, man, I wish I would have known this. Yeah. I think I wish I would have been able to predict or I wish I would have listened more to my mentors when they told me or their predictions about the future of the field. Yeah. Which most have been fairly accurate, but 
um, there's also some things you just never saw coming. Yeah. Well, what are your predictions for the field that a, a medical student should know about that may help or or dissuade them from from entering REI? Well, I think first of all, the field the field is booming. Um, there is increasing interest in it, and which means there is more job opportunities. So large um, clinics are merging and building new satellite facilities. So job opportunities should be abundant in the coming 10, 10 to 12 years. Um, I think employers will continue the trend as um, management uh, evolves. I think they will start to recognize the value. So like they will recognize the value of providing fertility treatment benefits to their employees. So there will be more people who have access to fertility care. So I think that's the second piece. So there will be more jobs. There will be more patients with access, so there will be more need. Um, so I think those are the big things. The genetic piece is going to be a big piece of the puzzle. Um, we're probably moving towards non-invasive genetic testing of an embryo, where you'll just test the media that the embryo is cultured in and look for free DNA within the media mm-hmm. instead of doing invasive genetic testing. Yeah. So that might make embryo selection better. I mean, right now. We're even doing that in serum, the mother serum, right? We're trying to do that. We are. So yeah, yeah, like currently you can look at fetal DNA in the mother serum. So now they're trying to look at it in the culture media um, to help better select embryos. So I think that will, because the goal is to try to maximize, um, right, your per cycle success rate. And right now, depending on what denominator you use, you know, most clinics are well above a 50% delivery rate for women under 35. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could probably range up to 85%. I don't know if we'll ever get to a hundred percent. Like I think it would take, you know, a long time to get to that level. In fact, there was a paper that was written predicting how many years it would take to get to a hundred percent, which is predicted like 250 years. Um, but I think those are the big things, more access, more jobs and genetics. Any last words of wisdom for the student interested in REI to, to get more exposure or to, to help them be more competitive? Um, reproductive endocrinology um, is a, I mean, it's a great field to be in. It's booming. It's a fun field. You'll never have a dull moment. Um, I would definitely reach out to your local reproductive endocrinology and infertility division. And if you don't have one, reach out to a local clinic and ask them for an opportunity to shadow, get a, get an idea of what the work is like, but pay attention to um, not just the procedures, but shadow, literally just shadow the doctor, because what you'll find is the doctor spends a lot of time um, managing patients who failed. Yeah. And that is probably the most emotionally exhausting part of the fee- of the specialty um, because not everyone walks in the door will not everyone who walks in the door will be successful, but you have to make sure that they have a good experience because you can control that. You can control their experience to some extent. You can make sure that everyone is nice on the phone. You can make sure that the nurses respond in timely fashion, that you respond in a timely fashion. So this is probably the most patient centric specialty in medicine just inherently. Um, so I think if that is something that is not your speed, then you might want to find some lane within REI that is not so patient centric 
uh, whether it's um, a research opportunity or something else. Um, but there is a lot of opportunity to really shine if you are someone who's really fascinated with the patient experience. Do you and see sure it's better. Uh, with that last thought there, do you see uh, as medicine becomes more and more specialized and we're seeing OB hospitalists, do you see a REI hospitalist that's just retrieving eggs all day long and, and the other docs are in the clinic? Uh, you could, there, there is such models that exist, but they're, they're not to the level of um, the hospitalist model. Okay. Um, but there are, pra- like I have a, a friend who's in a practice where the senior partner just was like, you know what, I'm just going to be, I'm going to retire, but I want to semi-retire. And I don't know if this is still the case, but that person, there are two such people in her practice, I believe. And they just do the retrievals yeah, all day. And then everyone else sees patients and does transfers because they kind of decided that the embryo transfer is kind of the most intimate part. So we're going to let the physician of the patient do that. And then we'll just have one person who's always doing or two people who are just constantly doing the retrievals. Okay. So I, I see it happening, especially in larger practices where the, the volume may just necessitate it to be that way. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Kenan Omertog in REI OBGYN specialist at WashU in St. Louis. I hope you learned something new in this episode. And if you didn't, that's okay. Next week, you may find something new for you. Don't forget to subscribe so that hopefully we can pique your interest and help you learn something new next week on Specialty Stories. We'll see you next time. This is MedEd Media.